Good morning, friends. So good to be here with you again today to dive into the Word of God together, to sing of His praises, to worship the Lord. Uh, we've been the church for about 19 years now, and uh, from time to time we've had different kinds of sermon interruptions at Sun Valley Church. Many of you have been here for the duration, and so you probably recognize each of these stories, but uh, I'm going to recount some of the more famous sermon interruptions for you and uh, see if you were interrupted at the time. I don't even know if you remember this, but when we first built this building, there were radio signals flying around inside the building during the sermon. You remember that? So you'd be sitting here listening to to uh, some radio station, and it was just because of the wiring in the ceiling. And as far as I know, it's gone. Of course, I'm older now, and I might be deaf, but um, it's gone as far as I know. <laughs> A lot of the distractions are I can't hear them anymore. But um, we had radio signals at one point. Uh, back at East Valley High School, when we were meeting there, a couple times we had the lights go out. No lights, and so that obviously interrupted the sermon. It, it ended. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the, uh, the one that is such a great encouragement to the preacher, snoring congregants, right? It's like, okay, I, I get it. This is a boring sermon. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I think twice this happened. We had somebody, I'm not sure it was an adult or a, or, a, or a youth or below, but someone pulled the fire alarm. Uh, they, I think one of your parents said, hey, go pull the fire alarm, Sonny. We need to get out of here. <laughs> that was one interruption. Another interruption here, uh, a lady came up on the stage and plugged in her iPad because it was running low on power. Why wouldn't you do that during the sermon? Right? <laughs> Couldn't get to one of those over there. Had to use this one. <laughs> All right. And then uh, I think about four or five years ago, we had a, a pregnant lady sitting up here three or four rows back and she passed out. I mean, I don't know, something to do with her baby laying on one of her main arteries or something, and out she went. And I didn't catch it. I mean, that's how observant I am. Uh, she's out here unconscious, and I'm preaching away. And this someone in the group over here said, hey, <laughs> she's passed out. And so I'm like, all right, someone called 911. And so that interrupted that sermon. Uh, one time, this is, this is one that, that always uh, I'm a little wary of, but this happened once over at the high school. We had a guy sitting over here raise his hand and ask a question in the middle of the sermon. He was confused about something, and he needed some answers immediately, evidently. So, and then, of course, there's the fussier, disgruntled toddler that we, we get from time to time. But uh, these are sermon interruptions that, that uh, can happen in a church setting. I'm going to read for you a story from Mark chapter 2. If you have a Bible, we should turn to Mark chapter 2, and I want to read for you a story of probably one of the more famous sermon interruptions and see if we can learn something from this story, from the Holy Spirit this morning. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported to him that he, reported that he was home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now there's a sermon interruption. (laughs) That is one of the most famous sermon interruptions. We've never had anything like that happening here. I mean, no one's ever torn through the roof to get to the front row. We've got plenty of room up here if you want to move up here and sit down. No one's having to tear through the roof to get to these choice seats, obviously, right? But here it is in this sermon, someone tearing the roof off, literally, to get close to Jesus. This is a great story about faithful people who brought a hurting friend to Jesus for complete healing. But more than that, it's also a story about a great Savior who patiently and lovingly deals with the chaos in the lives of individuals. This is what we see over and over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus getting personal. And and the intent is, is that we will insert ourselves and see for ourselves this Jesus. And there are many lessons that we can learn from this interesting story. We could spend a few weeks here, you know, for sure. But today I just want to uncover a few of these lessons that I think are valuable. And I also want you primarily walking out of here with an understanding that being a faithful friend means that you are taking those who are hurting to Jesus. Do you know people in your life who are hurting? Your kids? Your neighbors? co-workers. I want you to hear this morning, being a faithful friend means taking those who are hurting in your life to Jesus and exposing them to the only one who can solve their chaos, whatever it is. That's what I want you to hear this morning, to hear. That's what I want you to leave with. In order to do that, I'm going to pick off four areas, I think four main ideas of this story things that Jesus was doing in this story, these 12 verses, to help you see these lessons, all right, come, become clear. First of all, what do we see Jesus doing? Right at the very beginning, reported that he was home, and what was he doing at home? He was preaching again, right? Remember, he, was, he had to go out into the wilderness and lonely places, desolate places, because of the healing that he had caused just a few verses before with the leper, Because the leper was able to go into town, now that he was healed, Jesus had to go out of town because of his fame, 
He couldn't even walk in town, so he withdrew. But here he came back after some days, it says, and began preaching again, preaching the gospel. Now, according to Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus himself said, this is why I came. I came to preach the gospel. That's why I'm here. So this, this was resuming his ministry for which he had come to earth, preaching. According to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, which we studied a few weeks back, we see that Jesus was preaching the gospel specifically, and that's important. He wasn't preaching good stories or, you know, you know, illustrations about Wall Street. No, he was preaching the gospel in his sermons. And to make sure that you know what that means, what is the gospel that Jesus was preaching? Well, it's the same gospel that we have today, right? It's the same gospel that we find all over the scriptures. That there is a holy God that we must deal with, and we are sinful people. Those things don't mix, holiness and sin. And so there is this separation between us and God. That's the first two points of the gospel message. We have a holy God and we ourselves are sinful. That's what Jesus was preaching. But he went to the third point also, which is there is a divine solution to this separation between God and man. There is something or actually someone who is actually a resolution to this separation between man and God. And that person is Jesus Christ himself. So the gospel is there's a holy God, sinful people, God's solution, Jesus Christ. And then as Jesus did in almost every single sermon recorded, he offers a point of decision. He calls for a decision. What do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? This is how Jesus ended most of his sermons. A call to repentance, a call to respond to the gospel message. We see it here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. He, he said things like this all over the gospel. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, you who are pressed down by the chaos in your life, come to me and I'll give you rest. All right? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You want to get to the Father? You want to reconcile this broken relationship because of sin? I'm the only way there. I'm the solution. This was the gospel message Jesus was preaching all the time, everywhere he went. All right? Now, <laughs> the, the, gospel message, the gospel message was central to Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. It was central to uh, the incarnation. The, the gospel message is what makes the advent important, right? God becoming man is what we've been singing about all morning, hearing about in the advent reading. God became man. Why? Because the gospel message requires that. It requires a divine solution, which is Jesus Christ showing up on the planet 2,000 years ago. This message, this gospel message, was central to Jesus' ministry. It's why Advent is important. It's the central message of Paul's ministry in the first century. It was central to the early church's message starting in Jerusalem and stretching around the globe. The gospel message has always been a central message to every faithful church. 
And here's the first lesson I want you to hear this morning. I have seven lessons for you, and you'll have to write these in. Lesson number one. The moment any church steps away from that central message of the gospel, they relinquish the blessing of God and the purpose for which they exist. You hear that? The moment any church steps away from that central message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they relinquish the blessing of God and the purpose for which they exist. No church can replace the gospel message with some kind of fancy programming, whether it's for kids or women or men or feeding the homeless or cleaning graffiti, whatever. They can't replace the gospel with those good things and expect God's blessing to continue. This has been the downfall of churches from the beginning. Many churches start out sold out, committed to, focused on the gospel, and because of all the felt needs they see in their community, they begin to drift from that message so that they can help this or help that or address them. And pretty soon they've lost the power of what it means to be a church and solve chaos of sin. Meeting felt needs is a good thing, and it needs to be done by churches, but the gospel message can never lose its priority to felt needs, as important as they are, if that church wants to keep God's blessing. So this is so critically important. And this happens in the pulpit also. Um, we, We see this drift from the centrality of the gospel by good preachers because they, they get enamored with the response of people, or they, they, they see the needs of people and want to address that marriage or those kids and forget that the gospel is the answer and start going after the symptoms instead of the problem. Happens all the time. And so no preaching can exchange the centrality of the gospel message for interesting stories or self-help encouragement or motivational speaking if that preacher expects God to continue to use him to change lives. So as long as we are as a church, Sun Valley, we must remain committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17, verse 18, Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father the following, just as you have sent me into the world, to, which is what? To preach the gospel. So I am sending them. Who's them? Us, his disciples, those who follow him. What I'm getting at here is the second lesson. The second lesson that pops up in this text. Just as the gospel message was a central point of Jesus' life and ministry, it must be ours as well. It must be central to our life in every way. Whether you're a teacher, a housewife, a lawyer, an accountant, our priority must be the gospel. Why? Because for the same reason that Jesus was sent into the world, you are sent into the world by Jesus. When you come to Christ, you don't come to get a ticket to get to heaven. You come so that you can be an emissary, an apostle, a, a messenger of Jesus Christ to those in your circle of influence, your oikos. Do you understand that? You are placed strategically by God himself where you are for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are not Christians to get to heaven. We're Christians to get the gospel to those in our life. 
So you're not a teacher, you're, you're not a lawyer, you're not a housewife who happens to be a Christian. No, you're a Christian who uses whatever vocation you have to pay your bills so that you can make much of Jesus. That's how we view things. That's how we must view things. Last time Jesus was in Capernaum, remember, before the leper, uh, he did a lot of healing. One, back at the end of chapter 1, it says he spent all night healing people. Many commentators believe that there were very, very few sick people left or demon-possessed people left in Capernaum. He had healed them all. He had cast out all the demons. And so we have this story after that that said there was still one remaining paralytic. There was still one lame guy here. Where was he on the first round? Why didn't he show up, you know, whether, whether a week or months earlier when Jesus was healing people left and right? Well, we're not sure about that, but that leads us to our second point, which is dealing with sermon interruptions. As I mentioned, we've had our share of sermon interruptions here at Sun Valley Church, but nothing like this, tearing the roof off? Are you kidding me? I'm not sure why this particular man missed out on the first round of healings, but it's obvious he did. He's sitting here, lame, unable to get up. Maybe his four friends were busy getting their own healing, their own chaos solved the first time Jesus was healing in town, and they forgot about this guy. They weren't able to go get him, didn't have enough time, I'm not sure. But here's the ultimate reason why he was still sick, still lame, on this second round of healing in Capernaum, God wanted to use him to establish something very important in Mark chapter 2. God withheld his healing in the first round so that when Mark chapter 2 rolls around, something significant and important can be communicated to you and me. Hence the story, all right? This is really important. Because we pray and we plead with God for certain things in our lives that we would like to see happen that we know would bring him glory, and yet they remain unfulfilled. And we got to ask, why? Lord, <laughs> your, your word says, this is your will. Why the delay? What's going on? Well, maybe there is something in the future that you are unaware of that God is saving this particular miracle for that moment to communicate something significant about the glory of Jesus Christ. Not just to you, but those watching you. So keep praying, keep expecting the Lord to do whatever you have asked him to do for months and years, continue. But here we have a, a story about four friends who brought their their hurting friend to Jesus. Whatever the reason for the delay of his healing in their mid-sermon extreme through the roof entrance, no doubt changed Jesus' sermon. I mean, you just can't have someone dive through the roof and have it not change something in your sermon. I'm not sure anybody could do that. And it's obvious that Jesus dealt with it. He just didn't say, oh yeah, okay, thanks for coming. Let me continue here. No, the sermon was interrupted 
The four men tore off the roof, lowered their crippled friend to Jesus. It was a dramatic scene. Jesus had to adjust his sermon, and he did so, but took full advantage of the interruption to communicate something very important about himself, about the gospel. Talk about a powerful sermon illustration. Yeah, and I was saying, can you imagine the scene? Just as this cripple needs to be healed of his, his um, paralysis, you need to be healed of your spiritual paralysis. Just as I can heal this guy, I can heal you. Can you see it? <laughs> I can. Talk about an application of the gospel. This guy falls through the roof at just the right time. Physical healing, friends, is just a picture of the much greater healing that each of us need. And Jesus knew that, and so he used it to its fullest. Lesson three, how do you deal with interruptions? I know how I deal with them. Generally not too great, right? Many times our reaction to interruptions are frustration, impatience, anger. But it seems that Jesus rolled with the situation and used it to further communicate why he came and to address this man's greatest need, who was also, so happened, everybody else's greatest need in the room. And, and by the way, we Calvinists really don't believe in interruptions, do we? I don't think we can if we hold to our theology. We, we don't believe in interruptions. It might be better described as a divine appointment which this was, I think it's helpful to think of these things in this way. Instead of an interruption, it's a divine appointment with my child who won't get out of my space. This toddler won't leave me alone, right? Divine appointment. Well, that divine appointment with that talkative person at Home Depot doesn't have any friends, right? With the friend asking for help to move next weekend, divine appointment, not an interruption, a divine appointment. I think the lesson is we should jump at the chance offered when we encounter interruptions. We need to jump at those chances. God has something for us to do in those circumstances, specifically. Jesus shows us that in this. The sermon interruption gave Jesus the opportunity to get to the heart of the message and the heart of his mission immediately, which was the forgiveness available through the person of Jesus Christ. His secondary focus was, of course, the man's paralysis. But the primary issue, and the thing he took advantage of, was this guy was a sinner who God literally dropped in front of him in that moment to accomplish that purpose. I think we can have a similar viewpoint. Lesson number four. God uses means to bring people to himself. I don't know if you've been writing down these lessons as I've been presenting them here today. This one, you cannot miss. Please remember it, write it down, engrave it into your brain. God uses means to bring people to himself. In this case, he used four friends. We Calvinists often believe that if God is going to save someone, he'll get it done. That's our attitude, right? If God's going to save someone, he'll get it done. <laughs> but this story clearly shows that God works through means to get it done. This is especially important in, in our evangelism. 
We may try to alleviate our burden or our guilt for not evangelizing by saying something like this, well, since God is sovereign, he'll, he'll get all his elect to heaven somehow, and he most certainly will, but let me say something else. He always uses means to get his elect to heaven. He always uses prayer to get people to the gospel. He always uses friends to bring them. He always uses stumbling words to get it into their ears. He uses our invitations to church. He uses our befriending outcasts. God uses means. God expects you and I to be like these four men, stretcher-bearing Christians. Stretcher-bearing Christians. He expects you to take advantage of those interruptions, of those opportunities, divine appointments that he places in your way to use you as a means to get the gospel to the people in your life that need the gospel. Hear me, please. Thirdly, we see Jesus completely healing this guy. It's a complete healing. He didn't end with just a raising him from his cot so he could walk. No, he went to the core of the issue to the center of this man's problem, to the reason he was crippled, sin. Jesus is forcing the scribes in this passage to make a decision about his identity. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be, God, or he was a blasphemer. And I think Jesus pushes these scribes a little further into the quandary, into a very uncomfortable place. After he declares the man to be forgiven, he asks the Pharisees who were questioning this to solve a simple riddle, right? You see the riddle there? Uh, he perceived in his spirit that the que they questioned in themselves, why does this man do this? Only God can forgive sins. So he says, here's a riddle, verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk? It's an easy question. It's an easy riddle, right? But, he, but either answer nails them. That's the beauty of this riddle. Of course it's easier to say the words, you're forgiven, right? I can say anything I want. You know, I, I was the NFL's leading scorer for years. You know? Really? Yeah, I can say whatever I want. You can do the same. You know, I could pick out one of you and say, yeah, this person's the best author ever in the history of man. Really? I didn't know they go to our church. Yeah, sitting right there every week. I can say whatever I want. You can say whatever you want. But the issue comes by backing up what you're saying. So Jesus here is giving them a riddle that no matter which way they answer, reveals his identity. Right? <laughs> Either answer requires omnipotence. Whether you say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven or it's easier to say get up and walk, both require omnipotence. You can't say either without being God. So he has these guys in a corner. There's no way out. So only God could do this miracle to heal this man's limbs so he could walk or forgive this man's sins. The cat is out of the bag. Now what are the scribes going to do with Jesus? He's got him in a corner. The scribes, of course, as will become familiar as we work through the Gospel of Mark, they, they make the wrong choice, right? They determine that Jesus is blaspheming. 
He's, he's blaspheming. And when we get later into the gospel, Mark will see that they, they blame Satan for that. He's able to do miracles and, and do what he does because he has gotten power from Satan. That's, that's another story. But Jesus gave them a choice with only one logical answer. Jesus is God. And so the poor scribes here were, you know, in way over their heads. We see this quite often in, in the Gospels. But not only did Jesus put the riddle to them to solve, but he also proved to them his deity by telling them what they were thinking. I mean, you can't do that, right, unless you're God. I mean, sometimes my wife can have a pretty good idea what I'm thinking, but she's only right half the time, right? This is, this is the God of Psalm 139 we're talking about. The, the God who knows what's going to come out of your mouth before it crosses your lips. That's the God here in Matthew, I mean in Mark 2. It's the God who knows everything about you, where you are, when you rose up, when you lie down, what's coming out of your mouth. That God is the God revealed in Mark 2. This put the scribes in a predicament. So Jesus, the first thing that Mark records is this, is this spiritual healing, the forgiveness of sins, right? But I want to skip down to the second, the physical healing part. And then I'll go back and get the spiritual healing part. The physical healing uh, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, even though it's early, doesn't really shake us or move us, right? We've already seen two or three healings by this time. Physical things have already changed. I mean, the leper was clean. All these sick people in Capernaum were healed. So this is the third physical healing. It's no big deal. It's almost ho-hum to us by now, right? Yeah, okay, this guy can heal people. So what? So <laughs> this is not that great of a deal. But, but Mark takes us one step deeper into the identity of Jesus here. Um, he really hasn't revealed yet that Jesus can forgive sins. Mark wants us to know that Jesus not only has power over Satan, demons, temptation, and disease, he wants his readers to know that Jesus has the power and authority to get rid of the core issue that troubles each of us, sin. That's new territory. Jesus can resolve the chaos of sin in your life. He can go way beyond the physical things that torment us to the core of the issue in each of us. He addresses the primary and ancient problem troubling every man, woman, and child. He is the only one who can resolve the cause of all this chaos. And so he begins with this idea of spiritual healing. That's what's the stunning thing in this passage. That's what shocks us, grabs us, shakes us, was the record that Jesus forgives sins. Now, look, if you would, with me at verse 5. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. That word forgiven uh, is in the perfect tense, and it means past, present, and future forgiveness. How do you like that? Your sins, all of them, the ones you've ever committed, the ones you're currently committing, the ones you'll ever commit in the future, are forgiven. 
This man was saved on the spot. This man was on his way to heaven in this moment. That is amazing. (laughs) Of course, combining physical healing with forgiveness is not new in Scripture. We see this in the Old Testament even. Psalm 103, verse 3, which was on the overhead when you came in. It says, who forgives, speaking of God, who forgives all your iniquity, that's all your sin, God forgives sin, and he heals your diseases. Forgiveness of sin and healing, right there, in Psalm. Written, what, 2,000 years before Jesus came? Psalm 41.4. Also see the, the, the forgiveness and healing kind of mixed together, so it's hard to distinguish between the two. It says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Is it healing or is it forgiveness? Well, it's both, right? Listen to William Lane, the great commentator, who said this about Jesus' healing here in Mark 2. Healing is a gracious movement of God into the sphere of withering and decay, which are tokens of death at work in man's life. It was not God's intention that man should live with the pressure of death upon him. Sickness, disease, and death are the consequence of the sinful condition of all men. Consequently, every healing is a driving back of death and an invasion of the province of sin. That is why it is appropriate for Jesus to proclaim the remission of sins. He is reversing the curse here and everything about the curse, sin, physical sickness, disease. Jesus is just boring into the curse and everything about the curse and flipping it right in front of our eyes. And keep in mind, Jesus didn't minimize this man's sin, as we see so many times in pulpits who have forgot the gospel. He didn't minimize this sin. He didn't suggest that the man needed to put his guilt aside and focus on his self-worth and the good things in life. You're a good guy. Come on. Why why the the sour face? You didn't see that at all. No, Jesus addressed his sin head on. In fact, that's the first thing he addressed. It's almost as if Jesus didn't know he was crippled. I mean, if you were somebody in the audience, you'd say, who cares about a sin? Why don't you... Strengthen his legs, right? Well, Jesus actually knew the problem here. No, Jesus addressed his sin. He saw this man's sin as the biggest problem, not his paralysis. Jesus' forgiveness of sin shows us that we can only genuinely be whole when the fracture of sin that separates us from God has been healed through forgiveness. Hear me, I'm going to say that again. Jesus' forgiveness of sin shows us that we can only be genuinely whole. Jesus isn't just interested in, in healing your marriage. Sure, he wants that healed. No, listen. Jesus' forgiveness of sin shows that we can only be genuinely whole. When the fracture of sin that separates us from a holy God has been healed through the forgiveness of sin, it must start there. Who cares if your marriage is a mess if you're on your way to hell? 
right? Who cares if my children have problems if I'm out of touch with Christ? We need to be careful, though, how we present Jesus' healing to people, don't we? Especially in our culture. The right motives for coming to Jesus is important. Remember in John 6, where he fed 5,000 people, like free bread, made it out of nothing? Well, what happened at the end of that miracle? Jesus said, said, said some unbelievably difficult things to handle, like eat my flesh and drink my blood and grotesque stuff. He did that intentionally to check the motives of those who were clamoring after him. He, he, this is the same thing we must be careful of. Coming to Jesus because he can make food out of thin air is the wrong motive to come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus because he can help your marriage is the wrong motive to come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus so he can make you a better employee, businessman, more committed athlete, etc., are all the wrong motives for coming to Jesus. We must come to Jesus so he can resolve our sin problem. And then the accompanying chaos can be dealt with in time. It's called sanctification. But if we present Jesus as the, the marriage solver, we got a problem on our hands, don't we? But if we present Jesus as the sin solver, that is the road to complete wholeness. First, he solves your sin, and when he solves your sin, you become a more loving husband. When he solves your sin, you become a more caring parent. When we get our sin chaos resolved, things slowly but surely, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, begin to work themselves out. This leads us to lesson number five. Jesus heals all of our diseases, as it says in Psalm 103, starting with the disease of sin. Friends, don't think that you're going to have a resolution to any problem that you're facing in life if you do not deal with the thing that separates you from your God, sin. There's no other true and lasting resolution. Finally, verse or point four, the fourth thing I want you to see Jesus doing here in this text is exposing and crushing false religion. For the first time in his ministry, Jesus faced human opposition here in chapter two. Back in chapter one, we saw demonic opposition, we saw satanic opposition, but now is the first time we see human opposition to Jesus and his ministry. Chapter two, verse one, all the way to three, verse six, is one section of the Gospel of Mark. Two, one, to three, six. That section is all about the growing opposition to Jesus in his ministry. That's what that section's about, all right? And we see this here, plain as day. Look at verse seven here in chapter two. Jesus is accused of blasphemy, right? All right, look at verse 16 in chapter two. He's accused of keeping bad company. In chapter two, verse 24, and in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he's accused of breaking the Sabbath. Human opposition 
to Jesus and his ministry. And every time Jesus faced human opposition, his response was the same. What's he do? He exposes religious hypocrisy. That's how Jesus deals with human opposition. He exposes religious hypocrisy. From, from time to time, I think we all need a reminder of true religion, of true Christianity, because we naturally drift towards phony and hypocritical religion, even as Christians. We naturally want to look good to others. We naturally want to impress God with our religiosity. And this causes us to drift away from Christ instead of to him. Instead of seeing our need for a savior, we, we feel more resilient and independent, even as Christians. And so there comes times where the Holy Spirit, through the medium of preaching or scripture reading or prayer, highlights this point in your life, all right? We see signs of this decay, spiritual decay in our lives when we detect behavioral or vocabulary changes in the presence of other Christians. Follow. Does your behavior change when you come to church? How about your vocabulary? Do words like the Lord, grateful, glory, blessed, suddenly appear in your vocabulary when you enter this building? Do you talk like that at work or at home? Friends, this is a hint of spiritual danger. Do you treat your spouse or others differently around people that are Christians? You'll open, your, open the door for your wife at church, but not at the grocery store, not at home. I mean, she's capable, look at her. Open the door, woman. Right? <laughs> Sorry. You'll joyfully take a more distant parking spot at church because there's a bunch of other people trying to find parking spots at church. But you'll fight for the front row at Home Depot. And you're really angry about that blue circle. I mean, for Pete's sake. I'm spiritually handicapped. Right? Why can't I park there? This is the kind of thing that Jesus is addressing here. Isn't it just for those, those crazy, uh, hypocritical, you know, scribes and Pharisees? It's for those who were reading this text. Christians, godly people, who drift that direction by nature. Which brings us to lesson six. The remedy for this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of decay, spiritual decay, is what we see here in Mark chapter 2, which is what? The Word of Christ. Saturation with the Word of Christ. Saturation with Scripture. If you see a hint of the kind of things I've been describing in your life, the remedy, the solution, to that chaos is flooding your soul with the words of Christ. There is no other solution. So be saturated with the word of Christ. In church, at home, it keeps false religion at bay. Unless we are saturated, we will, without a doubt, drift, drift into that kind of Christian life. And so the first thing we see here is that Jesus exposed this unbelief. 
He exposed this hypocrisy. This is the first of many encounters with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And by the way, these scribes were top-notch lawyers. They were experts in the written law. They knew it backwards and forwards. Their whole lives were committed to, devoted to, the study and interpretation of biblical law. They knew it backwards and forwards. Jesus was determined to not allow their false religion, their drift into spiritual decay, to rule the moment. He wasn't going to play religious games that the scribes and Pharisees had played for years. It's the same kind of games that we begin to play the longer we're in church. Have you ever heard of this? Playing church? Christians are the ones who play church, no one else. All right? Jesus was determined to not let this slide off the table without being addressed. When Jesus declared that this man's sins were forgiven, it offended these scribes and Pharisees because the Old Testament says, Jesus, that God alone can forgive sins. The Pharisees were right. They were spot on in their doctrine and theology, and they didn't recognize Jesus, the one standing right in front of them. Are you hearing me? You can sit in church until you're blue in the face and not see Jesus. You can have all the doctrine and theology down pat and walk out of here next week more concerned about yourself than about anybody else in the world. More concerned about the, the sliver in my eye than the log that's in your own. Right? Does that sound familiar? Friends, these scribes had accurate theology and doctrine, but their hearts were hardened against God himself, Jesus of Nazareth. This means that we can have accurate theology. We can be precise in our doctrine and not know Jesus. Is there anything that scares you more than that? They didn't believe that Jesus was God. The only alternative was that Jesus was blaspheming. And so because of the hardness of the heart, they went to that option. And of course, this charge of blasphemy is ultimately what the Jews used to justify sending Jesus to the cross. In this story, Jesus revealed in a stark way the re religious leaders simply didn't believe. And yet they had all the facts. They, Jesus presented four persuasive arguments for his deity here. He healed a lame man, right? This guy was lame. That takes God. He knew what the scribes were thinking. That's pretty important if you're going to claim to be God. He forgave the man's sin. And then here at the end, he called himself the Son of Man, a direct quote from Daniel concerning the coming Messiah. Friends, <laughs> Jesus exposed false religion. He exposed their unbelief. And he also exposed their pride. This isn't on the surface, so let me point it out to you. And by the way, pride and unbelief always go together, don't they? Right? You know that. It seems that the only people who were sitting in this packed room were the scribes and the lame man. 
Everybody else was standing. It was standing room only, Mark said. They were flowing out into the street. It was so full in the house. And yet, we had the scribes and the lame man sitting. The only one sitting. Now, why were they sitting? It says they were sitting. And the scribes were sitting. They were sitting because they thought they deserved to sit. Everybody else deserved to stand. They were scribes, after all. They were the leaders of Israel, after all. They knew the scriptures, after all. They knew the answers. They got the Timothy Award in Awana, probably. Right? They deserved to stand. I mean, to sit. Everybody else should stand. <laughs> and Jesus pointed out that pride by telling the lame man, Get up and walk. So the only people left in the room sitting were these unbelieving scribes. Everyone else was standing, including the forgiven man. See, they enjoyed being above the people, being honored by the people, being revered by the people, but Jesus came, God came to serve the people. You see that? Mark 10, 45. This gospel, by the way, is presenting Jesus as a servant. Here in Mark 10.45, Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man, there's that title again, came not to be served, but to serve. God said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Exposing pride. You see, out of love, Jesus is in the habit of exposing pride and unbelief. Out of love, he does that. Because the only way anyone can deal with pride and unbelief if it is exposed. <laughs> this is why it's good to hear preaching. This is why it's good to be married to a person who loves you and who believes. You see, because if pride isn't exposed, it stays festering in our lives. Pride is what keeps us from true religion. Pride is what keeps us from God. Pride is what causes dysfunctional relationships. It ruins churches. It sends people to hell. This is why Jesus, loving Jesus, exposed it even in the Pharisees and scribes. He's compassionate. He cares. He loves. He exposes these kind of things so that they will be healed. And this brings us to our final lesson, lesson seven. The gospel deals with pride at the gate. You understand that? You can't get in with pride. All right? <laughs> For you are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that you won't pridefully boast. Everybody who comes to Christ, everybody who walks with Christ, everybody who is in his family, everybody who is in the church, the real church, has left pride at the door. You aren't saved out of merit. You're not saved because of who you are or what you own or who your parents are. There's only one way in the gate, and it's through humility. 
through faith. And what, what a beautiful picture. There is no one here that is better than anybody else here who knows Jesus. Pride is left at the gate. This is what we read all over Scripture. Philippians 2, Jesus became man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the only way in, friends. Now, as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to examine yourselves. I want you to examine yourselves, starting with this lesson, lesson on pride, working back to the first lesson. I want you to think about, pray about, examine your heart to see where you are in each of these lessons. Are you seeing yourself as a stretcher-bearing Christian? Or you don't have time for that? You've got money to make, places to go, people to see. Are, are you understanding the, the work of Christ for you in the gospel? So examine your heart, Christian friend, and then come and lay these things at the feet of Jesus here as we serve you the elements. All right? Acknowledge your sin. Embrace the Savior who heals not only your diseases, but your sin. Come running to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, uh, don't make things worse by coming up here and taking of the elements that are reserved for Christians. Uh, confess your sin, embrace the Savior then, run forward and participate in this, that is promised by God to, to nurture and, and feed his people. I'm going to read the words of institutions from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And then uh, while I'm reading, if you're an elder that's going to help me serve, you can come forward at that time. And then I'm going to pray for the elements. And then we're going to ask you who know Christ to come forward here, no matter what the condition of your heart, if you're a Christian, I want you to come forward and be touched by the Savior here, by what's represented in these elements, the broken body of a Savior, the spilt blood of a Savior. I want you to come and be encouraged, strengthened, nurtured. And then take your elements back to your seat and take them whenever you're ready, all right? So let me read the words of institution, elders, if you would come. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we have a wonderful Savior. Let's thank him. Lord Jesus, our hearts are overwhelmed with your goodness, with your grace, with your mercy, with your love. As revealed here in the pages of 
Mark chapter 2. Your compassion for this crippled man began with his sin. What a wonderful story of a truly loving Savior. Father, for those in this room who are struggling with the sin and the consequences, the chaos of that sin, I pray that you, Jesus, would do the same miracle of grace for these in this room as for that man in Capernaum 2,000 years ago. That man who was forgiven of his sins, that man who is currently enjoying your presence right now. Father, do that for us. Help us to deal with our hypocrisy, with, with our spiritual decay. Help us not to be content with those things. Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus of Nazareth, do your work in us. We thank you for the broken body of our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for the spilt blood of our Savior Jesus Christ who makes all of this possible. Minister to us now, Holy Spirit, in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.